Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our guest for today is the president and CEO of Bigger Pockets and also the author of the book, Set for Life. He will share with us how to avoid the middle class trap, tips to build up your cash reserve, and live a life of financial independence, especially for someone just starting out. Let's welcome Scott Trench. All right. Today we've got Scott Trench with us. He is president and CEO of The Bigger Pockets, author of the book First Time Homebuyer and Set for Life, and co-host of Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. Scott Trench, thanks for coming on our show. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. I think that was, you know, pretty good intro. I'm obsessed with the concept of financial freedom, both personally and for as many people as possible. Love the intersection of personal finance and real estate. At home, got a wonderful wife named Virginia. We're about to expecting our firstborn daughter in a few weeks, uh, October 6th. So I actually miss our Bigger Pockets conference while I'm reading our new family member. So I guess that's a little bit about me. Well, congrats on that. That's awesome. Yeah, baby um, on the way. Very, very cool. AJ and I are also very just on board with the idea of financial freedom. One of our core values is freedom and financial freedom is a key piece to that. And at our company, we actually created a book club and Set for Life was one of the first books that we read. And I hand that book out quite often. So it's an honor to have you on the podcast and Really, really, really fun to chat about financial freedom with you. Thank you. It sounds like I owe you a beer. Soon, I hear. So absolutely. You, so usually we get started off by just kind of asking, like, how did you get into real estate? What was that kind of like, you know, step like? What was it like growing up? And then how did you kind of find out about real estate and get into it? Yeah. So coming out of college, I went to Vanderbilt University and was in a fraternity in the you know rugby club there. So that tells you I spent a lot of my time, but I was surrounded by a lot of folks that had a lot of privilege and wealth. And I was like, I think that that kind of put in the back of my mind, at least this idea of, you know, becoming wealthy and having means is going to provide optionality and these things in life. Not that I was not well off, but I certainly was exposed to folks that, you know, had serious financial freedom available, at least in their family throughout their lives and saw the advantages that reaped. Anyway, so after college, I got a job as a financial analyst at a Fortune 500 company, and I absolutely hated it. Within three months, I decided that I wanted to become financially independent. And I really kind of came across that concept in a more tangible sense with the Mr. Money Mustache blog. This is a blogger that's local here in Colorado. He lives up in Longmont. And he talks about how you can, you know, frugal your way to financial freedom very early in life by, you know, spending less than 50% of what you earn and investing it in, you know, stocks or other long-term assets like that. So I thought that was great, but 17 years was still way too long, even saving 50% of a $50,000 a year salary. So I also, I wanted to accelerate that with something else. And that's when I kind of combined. So late 2013, when I started my job and early 2014, I really discovered the bigger pockets platform, the website and the podcast. And was like, okay, this is it. I'm going to 
save 50% of my income and I'm going to combine that with a house hack. And the idea at first wasn't even to build passive income through real estate. It was just to live for free, which allowed me to go from saving 50% of my income to 75, 80% of my income, which would, you know, just make the freedom moment that much faster. So in 2014, I really immersed myself. I had saved up about $20,000, $25,000 over the first 12 months starting my career. And I did two big things in 2014. I joined Bigger Pockets, the company, as a startup team member, a little small pay cut, but much bigger opportunity. And obviously, very happy with that and how that's turned out and been really thrilled to join this wild ride. And the second decision was to buy that first house hack, which was a dumpy $240,000 duplex in Northeast Denver. And, you know, I think I put down $12,000 or 5% using an FHA loan. This was a home path property. It was one of the, not the last, but it was a later stage foreclosure that was, you know, increasingly rare at that time. And that allowed me to not have to compete with investors. So for 30 days, I didn't have any investor competition while I was looking to owner-occupy this thing. And that was not a common concept. House hacking was not a big thing at that time. So I really had no competition on that deal. I was able to get it for 240, like I said. Each side rented for about 1,100. The tenants that we placed on the other side had two cats. So I got 50 bucks from those cats, 1,150. And then I had a roommate pay me 550 for that. So that was $1,700 in rent on a 1550 mortgage. And that's how my kind of career got started there. After that, the bigger pockets job started ballooning for the next three, you know, I guess eight years. I've been here eight years now. And then, you know, the properties slowly started accumulating over the years, one every year, 18 months or so. Awesome. So 2014, I think AJ and I found bigger pockets like around that time as well, at least the forums. And I think I actually posted that I'm setting a goal for myself. We're going to buy 400 units in one year. (laughs) Did you do it? No. (laughs) You know, we only owned, I think, 12 units at the time. And we just bought our first fourplex. And I'm like, let's do it. And like, we've been trying to raise money through friends and family because we had only like, we'd maxed, AJ just quit his job. He just had a great W2 job. And we we just kind of went pro and, but we didn't have any way to get a loan. And so it was really, really, really hard to buy those 400, but we did get a deal. We got 14 houses on the same street from a property management client who wanted out. And she gave us owner financing for like 3 million bucks. And I feel like if we hadn't put that goal out there, we wouldn't have even been like thinking like on that level. And so you know, I think we bought a couple fourplexes and those 14 houses and doubled our portfolio. We didn't get 400, but <laughs> that's still a pretty solid year. So, <laughs> it two, was a good year. 2014, <laughs> if you remember, it was a really tough year because the market had been going up for six years in a row. It was going to peak. There wasn't any more room for appreciation. Everyone was speculating. There was just, you know, rent growth had stalled. There was going to be another round of price decline. So that was a tough year, right? Yeah. I'm saying that jokingly because that's how it's been every every year, but that's how it felt at the time. And I'm sure that's how it feels to everyone here in 2022 as well. Yeah, it's so funny. So you have a passion for like personal finance and you know financial freedom. So like what is I guess a framework for you for someone, you know, maybe your younger self who's drinking beers at rugby after rugby practice and you know, like what. I swear I run into a a decent amount of college students who are like, 
yeah, you know, I, I don't want to get a job. I want to do real estate. And, you know, what do you think a pathway is for one of those kids? Well, I think that the pathway is the same for everyone or that the levers are the same for everyone. Which ones you choose to operate will be up to you, right? So the four ways you can get rich are spend less, earn more, invest, or create, right? Those are your four options. You know, you also have marry rich, which can be a good one to, to think about in college uh, as well. You know, and, yeah. So, but those are the four levers, right? And so I think that the college students should really internalize that and say, well, they're probably not going to be able to earn a lot in, are you asking specifically in college or right after college? Just to make sure I clarify that. Probably just right after college. Yeah. So right after college, you probably have an entry level job, right? And this is where like, I like to, I think you're probably, if you're like most, you're going to start off with an entry level job and essentially no assets, close to zero in assets, ideally very little in debt. Although a lot of folks start off with a lot of college student loan debt as well, but you, okay. Which of those options are available to you at that point? Well, the first one, the most obvious one is to spend less, right? Your income, your time is only worth, if you're making $50,000 a year, $25 an hour, $30 if you're making $60,000 a year. That's the median income right now in the United States. And you're probably going to start out earning in that ballpark. You've already optimized for income, right? Surely you took the best job that was going to pay you the most amount of money out of college that was conducive to where you wanted to live and the basic lifestyle requirements you had. So you're already optimized on that front. So everyone talks about earning more money. You should earn more money, but you can't control that in the near term. What you can control is your savings rate and how you begin to invest and whether you have a side hustle that you can begin thinking about these create options. So I'd start there. I'd start, I'd say, how do you save 50% of your income? I like the house hacking approach. I don't think that there's a better tool in the arsenal for the median wage earning employee who's starting out with very little assets than the house hack. I mean, this is something you can work on yourself in your free time to add value. This is something that will significantly subsidize your cost of living or even completely cover it, depending on how you do it, especially if you're doing like a short-term rental with part of the unit. But I like those as tools. And within a year, there's no reason why you can't save up enough for a down payment on a property in most markets in the country with a three and a half to 5% down payment for something that could work in this. You can't do that in San Francisco. You can't do it in, in New York City. You can't do it in Los Angeles, but you can do it here in Denver, Colorado, and you can do it in most markets around the country within a year or two of hard work and grind. Yeah, you can do it in Portland. <laughs> yeah, you can. I mean, look, is it going to be glamorous? No, but it's, you know, do you want to get ahead or not? If you want to get ahead and you want to start out, I think that's a really good tool in the arsenal. And other things on the career side, play a game you can win. Right? I think a lot of companies have these corporate ladders that you, hey, you know in five years that you can go from fifty dollars to $100,000 in, in income if you crush it. That's great, but that's not really a game that's going to get you out of this rat race in five years. Can you play a different game? Can you say, I'm going to stockpile $35,000 in cash and that'll last me eight to 12 months. And now I'm going to go and become a real estate agent and think about, hey, you know, within a year or two, I could be earning $200,000, $300,000 a year if I hustle at that. Or can I take another type of sales job? Or can I join a startup? But I think you have to set yourself up with a game that you can win. And I think that starts with a stable financial position, low expenses, and flexibility to pursue things that may not pay you back immediately. Nice. And I mean, those are kind of like side hustles or the create kind of like opportunities that you're talking about at the end there. You know, if someone were to like try, if you're talking to someone and they're like, I have no idea how to start a side hustle. Like, What's the sort of advice you kind of give them on to give them like an idea to start looking? So for this person that we're talking about, this person starting out of college with 
little to no net worth and a few assets. I think that the answer is really just work, right? You know, you're trading your time for money. I personally think, and people disagree with this, but I personally think that attempting to build an asset on the side while working a full-time job is really hard because there's other full-time entrepreneurs like you two that are spending all day on their assets, right? That the best part of their day thinking about and not working in it, working on it and figuring out how to actually improve it and build their business. So I like the idea of just trading, you know, working, save as much as you can, build a nest egg, buy that first asset, maybe that house hack or whatever, and think about how do I build up a cash reserve that will enable me to flip my time so that all of it can be spent on something that's scalable, right? That was what really worked for me. I obviously got, you know, and they're not, these are not all repeatable journeys or whatever, but I joined bigger pockets and I was able to spend all day working on growing this company and thinking about how to do that. And that rewarded me with a path to being the CEO of the startup a few years ago and, and having major scalable income opportunities. You know, if I hadn't done that, my other option when I left my corporate job was to become a real estate agent. And I know the other folks that joined that brokerage and I see them earning three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year with their sales four, five, six years later. Right. And so that's the thing is you can't do that in your fifty thousand dollar per year job. You have to, I think, build a position that can actually go after some kind of opportunity if you want to become wealthy early in life or become financially free early in life, in my opinion. What do you guys yeah, think? And that's kind of like taking a job that rewards you for commissions or for work. Like, you know, the harder you work, the harder you get paid. It's maybe not necessarily, you know, a straight like W-2 salary, but it has some sort of like sliding scale that allows you to mm-hmm. earn some more, which is, which is kind of fun. And most of the time that sort of stuff really pl- is exponential. Like, you know, the amount of work that, and it's kind of like business too, like the amount of work that you put in today for starting a business or working on a business, like usually we're not going to see the benefits until years down the road. I mean, even like doing this podcast here, like when it first releases, there's a few people that listen to it, but over the course of, you know, a year or two, that it becomes a significant amount of people. That's right. And and that's the, that's the trade-off, right? Is that if you want to become wealthy and have a business or a huge income and a path to that early in life, the trade-off is you're not going to get paid a high base salary and have the privilege of having a shot at those outcomes, right? That's a trade-off. And that's why I think keeping your expenses so low and building a nice nest egg will empower you to be able to take that year to figure that out and get at least off the ground and back to a baseline. But that's the real trick is, you know, there's no way I would have been able to become financially free early in life if I'd stayed at my job. I would have gone from 50 to 55 to 72 to whatever. Like I would have had those, those types of salary jumps and I would be making, you know, $110,000 a year or something right now, which would be good. It's not bad, but it's not a path to financial freedom early in life. Would have been Yeah, slow. staying at that W-2 job limits your upside. Mm-hmm. Whereas... You know, if you spend five years building something, you know, whether it's an asset base or a sales pipeline and referrals, that is going to reap lifelong rewards. That's right. But again, the trade-off there is I had to spend literally $25,000, $30,000 a year, like $2,500 per month in order to be able to accumulate the cash and buy that first house hack and those types of things. And then I had to take a pay cut and take a chance on a startup that might not have been around a few years after I joined with that. Right. And so for 
seven, eight years, I'm living at this very low cost. And that is what is allowing me to take these chances and have assets to invest in other places with that. The trade-off, of course, is that the person that works the full-time job and gets the high base salary, they can spend essentially all of that salary. And most people do for that entire time and live a very different lifestyle in those initial build-up periods. But I think if people can understand that dynamic and flip that switch that, no, 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 I'm going to spend the first, my 20s, getting achieving financial freedom or getting as close as I possibly can. I'm going to spend the rest of my life reaping that benefit on the other side of this rat race. That's what we want to get people to understand and do coming out of college, I think. Scott, you live and breathe this finance portion about real estate and about life and that sort of stuff. I mean, if you know, you, you come into contact with this new, maybe not this college student, but maybe someone that's later on in life and they're like, well, there's no way I could cut my costs. I mean, I think that kind of like everybody knows that there's ways to mitigate. Like, what are some of the easy ones that you tell people to pick off? I think if we zoom back out and we say, I think what you're really asking here is, how do you avoid the middle class trap? Right? <laughs> you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the middle class trap? The middle class trap is, you know, I'll call him Sam. Sam, you know, makes $115,000 a year. Sam is 35 to 40 years old. Sam has a $500,000 net worth, right? Sounds like Sam's doing pretty good. Problem is $250,000 is in Sam's home equity, right? And another $250,000 is in his 401k. He's got $10,000 in the bank and he spends $8,000 a month. He's got $6,000 in his credit card balance, right? So what's the problem here? If Sam loses his job, Sam is going to run out of money within one or two months. He is completely dependent, unless he starts liquidating his 401k or taking out a HELOC or selling his home, which he's not going to do. So that's a huge problem. In order to have freedom from an asset perspective, Sam would have to essentially pay off his mortgage. He'd have to pay off his car, his credit card loan. He'd have to stockpile hundreds of thousands of dollars in assets outside of those that 401k and his home equity. And now all of a sudden he has a little bit of access in his life and the ability, you know, passive income that can actually pay for part of that lifestyle, right? And so that's the middle-class trap we want to avoid. A much better position, in my opinion, would be if Sam had $50,000 in cash one rental property that was, you know, worth 250,000 in equity or had 250,000 in equity and was spitting off, you know, $1,000 or $1,500 a month in cash flow and then 250 in after-tax brokerage stocks, right? The power of that position is dramatically more is a dramatically more flexible position from which to attack life than the fellow with all of that home equity. So, yeah, and he's it, renting his house. Yeah, like he where did. he lives. 100%. He's a landlord, but he also has a landlord. 100%. And that's exactly how I live my life, right? I have a uh, rental property portfolio and then I rent my primary residence because it gives me a lot more flexibility to move in a lot of different periods. The only thing more flexible is house hacking, but house hacking did not make sense in the particular area I wanted to live for the last two years. I will certainly do it again with more and more luxury properties in the future as my position continues to improve. That I think is the challenge. How do you avoid that position? And if you're in that position, what do you do? Right. So if you're Sam, what do you do? Well, then you got to start at, you know, the fact of the matter is you have a bunch of hard choices. If you don't want to make a big change to your lifestyle, your housing or your 401k contribution, then you have to start with the boring old, I'm going to start cutting back on my grocery bill. I'm going to start cutting back on my entertainment budget. I'm going to save an extra hundred, 200, 500, a thousand dollars a month by pruning my expense list in my day-to-day lifestyle, which is no fun and really hard. And why Sam stays in that middle-class trap, essentially pouring all of his money into his 401k and home equity. If we want to solve that problem, what we would do is 
you'd have to say, Sam, you should probably stop contributing to your 401k for a little bit and start stockpiling some cash. So you have some actual liquidity in your life. Second, you should sell your home, sell your home and consider renting, redeploy that equity into a rental property or some kind of other asset or bolster your cash position here. Sell your car, right? And get something that's cheaper, like a used economy car. Go use some of that money to travel the world or have some, enjoy some experiences that you'll remember 50 years from now. Stop being house poor. And like, that's how you get the cycle started, right? Maybe consider a new job that has some upside with that. But like, that's preposterous. Sam's not going to do that, right? It's just a preposterous set of advice for somebody that's locked into that lifestyle. And that's why they're going to be stuck for 10, 15, 20 more years trying to build wealth piece by piece, you know, month by month, $100, $500 at a time instead of in big chunks. Don't you feel like the great resignation was, you know, that mini revolt happening a little bit? Like with- I, I do actually. Yeah. I think there is a lot of that. People are realizing this, but I don't think that just resigning your job is a great first step. <laughs> I think a much better first step would be thinking about where are your assets today? Where should they be in order to create a flexible position? Start there which involves those big lifestyle changes, and then think about the flow piece, which is your job, right? But I do think that a lot of people probably had some really good liquidity from the pandemic. So that liquidity, that cash position probably did help a lot of people have the courage to step back from that job and figure out something, the next thing. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Scott, I have another just kind of a off, maybe not off topic, but on topic question. Like, you know, when you're talking to people about the financial planning and kind of like what they can do, do you ever talk to them about private placements or syndications or kind of add that into, you know, it's in between the house hack and first or second asset and, and moving money into those type of deals? Yeah. For some folks, the problem with those private placements is that often, but not always, you need to be an accredited investor in order to access those things. And so most of the time, accredited investors are not having the issue that I just described there. There are, and that you can see that in the case of maybe, you know, we have from time to time on the Bigger Pockets Money Show podcast, guests who have a million to a million five in net worth. And you see an exaggerated form of that middle-class trap where they've got 500,000 in home equity and 750 in their 401ks. And they actually have very little freedom as a result of that, even though they're a millionaire with assets and they have, they have a fairly strong position. So for those folks, syndications can be a great opportunity. But for Sam, he's not ready for syndication quite yet because he won't be able to access most of them. And the ones that he will be able to access, you have to ask yourself the question, why is the syndicator not able to raise the funds from accredited investors with the easy button and having to play the harder game of raising capital from you know, unaccredited investors and opening up to everyone. That often, but not always, can mean that those deals are worse or there's more risk or the sponsor is not able for whatever reason to raise the capital from an accredited investor pool. What Scott, do you think? so you, you talked about, I guess, the four parts of gaining financial freedom. And one I hadn't heard of before was the create piece. And I just love that part of the idea, you know, like once 
you kind of like get the ball rolling. You've mastered your expenses, you've mastered your living situation, and you've created this runway. In your life, you joined a startup. In AJ, in my life, we started a property management company and a real estate brokerage and invested in properties. What other like creative, create, I guess, phases have you heard of? And I just feel like that's probably the most fun part of going on this journey. Yeah. Now, when you talk about those levers, any of them can be played at any point in time. But for the person who's just starting out, I think unfortunately, or fortunately, the most obvious lever is going to be spend less. Over the first five or six years of your career, it's going to be earn more, right? And thinking about the ways to maximize that potential. Once you have accumulated capital, it's going to be invest, right? What, you know, it's, you're not going to really be able to make your wealth materially change if you have $1,000 to invest. You can if you have 100 or 500 or a million, 100,000 or 500,000 or a million dollars to invest. And then I think that the create option, that's the most interesting one because people can do that in college or in high school. To, you can start businesses or create assets. And you hear about all, that all the time. You can do that while you're working a full-time job. But I think that for the majority of folks, you're going to have the most success once you've built a modest level of financial freedom and have that runway to go and pursue that. That's when you're not going to have to worry about raising capital and these other types of things. And you can really pursue that interest without you know, the exact way that you want for a period of time to get that business or that new idea off the ground. That's a little framing. Specifically to answer your question, there's tons of different opportunities. You can start an agent broker. You can start any type of business that you want to do. You can buy a business, which is kind of in combining the investing and creating and then begin running it. You can create a piece of intellectual property, like a book, right? I've written two books. Those are certainly part of that create component. Music, YouTube channels, blogs. These are all different, you know, where business can circle around them, but they're all different forms of this create concept to a large extent. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And yeah, so just the opportunity, you know, yeah, social media and whether it's learning the skill of like home remodeling instead of buying a house hack, being able to buy, you know, something that needs a ton of work. Like that's a great skill. Raising funds, you know, convincing your parents to help you buy a house hack. I did that in college and <laughs> love it. You no. Know, and I actually, I played poker in college too. And that was financially during the online poker boom. That was a fun create mission for me. I love it. It was more like a work. <laughs> gam gam yeah. Gambling can be either, you know, put it in the create or earn space. Yeah. Or invest, you know, Yeah, if you're good. <laughs> Well, um, well, I think we're getting on towards the end here. Should we get to the last four questions? Let's do it. All right, Scott, I'm going to start off with the first one. What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? My 25-year-old self? I would say self-educate relentlessly. So read as much as possible, absorb as many frameworks as possible. That's going to pay really good dividends. And what book would you recommend to your 25-year-old self? What book would I recommend? Um, Obviously set for life, right? <laughs> other than your own books. <laughs> yeah, I think there's so many that I love out there. I guess I would, if it was a personal finance book, I'd say potentially The Millionaire Next Door. I just think that there's a really good framework in there that's really consistent, long-term focused, data-driven, and timeless principles. But it really, the advice book. is not to read one book. It's to read 50 books a year <laughs> and just stockpile that knowledge. That's the way you can compete with experience. Yeah. 
Okay. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? I would say it's that my first entrepreneurial endeavor, I was drove for Uber. I tutored. Those are probably not entrepreneurial endeavors. There is the house hack. I had an idea for a winter tire rental business that was terrible where I would rent the tires. And the problem was I'd buy the tires, I'd rent them out. And then there would be, and then this entrepreneur showed me that, okay, what will happen there is that you have a three-year payback on this, but every time you're going to have new cars that all different tire requirements. So I'll just keep buying more inventory and never get my payback ever. It would kind of like in this infinite loop. If I don't know if I explained that very well, but that was a terrible plan and that got shot down. So also that was my first entrepreneurial idea that I was really excited about that I decided not to do. Thank God. And the house hack would probably be my first true entrepreneurial endeavor. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah. Third one here. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Yes. I would say both have been pretty influential. In college, I studied economics and history and minored in corporate strategy and finance. So I'm probably one of the few folks who really uses that degree pretty directly in my day-to-day, or at least did for the first few years of my career. And then, yeah, I'm now you know, reading that, you know, I'm kind of getting close to that book a week average that I would have advised my earlier self to do. So that just makes things a lot easier. Whenever I encounter a problem, I know which book to go back and revisit for at least some frameworks around that. I mean, it doesn't solve everything, but it solves a lot of things to have the advice of these experts to pull from whenever I want it. Did I hear that right? You're a double major, double minor? I was a dual major, which is kind of cheating. So it was a major and a half and then a double minor. Yeah. <laughs> that is a lot of work. How many credits were you taking every, I guess, semester? It, or I think I was just efficient with my credits because I think I was able to double stack a bunch of them for that. So I think I took like five classes a semester kind of deal. So I don't think it would have been particularly overload. Some people did less. Some people did a lot more. The engineers definitely saw less of them than you did of me. <laughs> Yeah, the rugby team got to see a lot of you then. Yes, so that was my big passion for a long time. So can't play rugby anymore, though. The back uh, is not keeping up. Okay, and our final question, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? You know, I think that I really... So like two years ago, I stopped house hacking and rented a place and got a great deal. I was in the middle of the pandemic and I bought a rental property, but I should have bought my primary residence. So I missed out from a primary residence point of view on the 20, 25% appreciation, maybe closer to 40% appreciation we saw here in Denver over that time period on a primary residence. That was my biggest mistake. I think the decision-making was sound. I can't predict the market. And I think my thought was it's better to rent than to buy if I'm not buying an investment property and I'm going to live in the property for less than seven years. So my takeaway is I can live with my decision-making, but the result was clearly a huge financial mistake. So, and missed opportunity cost. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to primary residence though, that's your biggest liability. Like (laughs) it is, you know, every single personal finance book that I think is legitimate actually like explains that that's your biggest liability. And so, I mean, I remember what was that 2019 at that same point in time, I was looking at selling my house too and multiple like single family home realtors were like, oh yeah, you know, we're peaking like, so to me, it it doesn't like, yeah, the results were unfortunate, but. Well, okay. So 
let's do this. So you're a poker player, right? And it's about the quality of the bet, not the outcome in poker, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's what we're saying here is this is not a good mistake because we think the bet was a reasonably quality bet, even though the outcome was clearly a missing out on hundreds of thousands of dollars in potential wealth, right? So yeah. a better mistake, a worse bet was probably in the 2018 to 2020 period, I did not buy a rental property because I just didn't execute my long-term philosophy is to buy a rental property every year or every 18 months and just kind of dollar cost average over 30 years buying more and more property consistently, but never getting it over my skis. And I didn't execute that because I was kind of lazy and just got absorbed in other things for that period of time. I could have very easily done that. That was probably, that's probably a better financial mistake for me is just failing to execute my strategy because I wasn't paying attention and keeping on top of my game. How's that? That sounds like a worse mistake. <laughs> that's that's our strategy. The advice, the, the advice that comes from that is always be looking, right? Like always be open for opportunities. I mean, Chris and I have, we are looking at buying more larger apartments these days, but like we still have searches set up for wholesale deals and duplexes and fourplexes that come across our desk in the area. And if there's something good, then, you know, jump on it. But always be looking, that's for sure. Always be buying, yeah. You know, with the long-term outlook, like if you're going to be in real estate for more than 10 years, you know, you're going to outlast any cycle. And if you buy something today, this is actually funny. The first property that I bought was that house hack that my parents helped me buy. And it was the worst deal I bought. I bought it in 2006 and I just sold it last year, but I 1031 exchanged it into a fiveplex, and now it spits out like three thousand dollars a month in cash flow, and it's love it. You know that was the worst deal I've ever bought. <laughs> One thing that I've been thinking about, and this is a complete tangent, is you know with cash flow is very difficult to find right now on new deals because of because interest rates have risen so much in the past twelve months. Rents have gone up a little bit, but I think it's about 4.5% on average across the country that wildly skews in different markets. So some markets see rent growth that are, is in the 20% plus range. But the problem with that is because interest rates have gone up so much, it's very hard to find cash flow on new deals. And it's very hard, at least in the next two to three years, to believe that appreciation is going to be north of that kind of 3.5% long-term historical average. So depending on how you underwrite your deal... I'm actually finding that buying with all cash, smaller deals, all cash, actually produces a better return in many instances than using leverage. And again, it all depends on what you assume for appreciation and rent growth, because those things matter greatly in terms of your compound annual growth rate on your investment. But something to noodle on there, and something that I'm going to be thinking about is, I'm going to still execute my strategy, but I might be buying smaller properties all cash for next year or two or three until interest rates either drop or I can believe in, or I have a good reason to conservatively believe in that three, four, 5% appreciation rate that we might see on an annual basis. What's your guys' reaction to that thought? I mean, my initial reaction is like, we do syndications and most of our syndications have an IRR of above 15%. So, I mean, unless the interest rate, and there's a function there of some sort of bank financing, but, you know, typically if we can, you know, even this if- value add, right? Yeah, yeah. and we can value add. So, you know, unless interest rates rise above 10 or 12%, like it's going to be kind of hard to not leverage that money, especially with the ability to, you know, if you have the capital available, 
rather doing three or four or five deals as opposed to doing just one deal. I think that sort of leverage, especially when you're young, is huge. You know, no one can predict the future, but if you're a long-term hold person and the rents can cover the payments, getting five places instead of one place is significantly better. Scott, you know, I love the new perspective and I'm just like, my mind is racing. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Initially, my reaction is, you know, our strategy, you know, sometimes it is to buy in cash and then do like a heavy lift and then refinance. But when you're able to, you know, find a deal that has like a decent amount of meat on the bone, I guess my initial reaction is, yeah, we probably still want to go with the bank financing. I mean, the bread and butter deals that we look for are ones that have a a heavy property management lift, whether it's implementing rubs or just raising rents, which is actually pretty difficult here in Oregon because of rent control and relocation fees. And so, you know, being up, like those are our favorite deals. And they're, you know, like there's a lot of older property owners who just don't want to deal with the litigious environment that comes along with billing back utilities and billing back and raising rents. Yeah, I completely agree with your thesis here. When you're doing a value add that has a very clear before and after, I know what I'm going to buy it for. I know what my ARV is going to be. And I know what my cost to reposition the asset is going to be. That's different. What I do, right, is I'm trying to park my money for 10, Mm -hmm. 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So completely agree. During the stabilization process, absolutely. It would make no sense not to use leverage on a deal that you have very clear numbers on and have a before and after. But my problem is once the asset is repositioned, what do I do at that point, right? Mm -hmm. Then I have to either sell or hold. And holding, if I'm on a hold, I can either hold with all cash or I can hold with leverage. And I'm saying that in that scenario, depending on what you believe, it may be more a higher ROI and lower risk to use no leverage during that hold period. And that's the thing to noodle on, but certainly would not disagree with what you guys just said there. I mean, so when you look at cap rates, cap rate is also a mechanism by measuring how much money your money is making. And so when you're looking in markets like ours and it's a four and a half to five cap, you know, like that would say that, you know, it would be better to buy that property. If that cap rate is lower than the interest rate that you were able to get, then yes, you would rather have your money working at that interest rate level. So say interest rates are at five and a half percent right now for a large deal, but you're buying like a four and a half cap. Well, that means that on your equity, you're only getting four and a half. So you might as well buy up the rest of it and get five and a half percent. Or you should be the lender. Well, that's essentially what you're doing, right? Is you're becoming the lender for yourself. So it's definitely a personal function. Like, do you believe that you can put your capital to work elsewhere and make more than seven or 8%? And for Chris and I, like our firm belief is like, we can definitely do that. North doing value adds. Yeah. But for for someone just parking their money, I mean, looking into, you know, those other opportunities that are, you know, provide equity or, you know, I mean, syndications are a great thing. Yeah. Finding people who are doing value adds and putting your money with them. Or, you know, and also just finding partners, like going to regular real estate meetups, like you're super familiar with those. And, you know, you find you can be the money partner for someone that has more time. And those relationships take work and they take time, but, you know, you find that those work out real well. 
I completely agree with everything you just said there. I just think it's a fun thought exercise to think yeah, for sure. For many buy and hold investors right now, now people with existing mortgages from last year, they're locked in. They've got those low interest rates. They should hold on to them. It's a great time to hold on to your property that you financed last year with a three, four percent mortgage, right? But if you're going to get a new investment property at a six and a half percent, seven percent mortgage rate, you're flirting with this line where you might be better off just owning it all in cash at the end of that and not cash mm-hmm. out refinancing. And that has major ramifications for where you park your money. You have to begin either exploring these other opportunities or making what I think is going to be a really difficult decision for most investors around owning outright or owning with leverage in the next couple of years if interest rates stay high. So that's a thought exercise I wanted to just run by you guys there. But I don't disagree with anything you're saying about, yes, there are always alternatives, but if you're like me and you want to park your money after the assets repositioned, some tough questions ahead. Well, and there's, you know, having owning an asset free and clear, that's a really nice luxury. And you can pull a HELOC off, you know, it's maybe it's only 50, 60%, you know, loan to value, but like, and being able to refinance that property when the timing is right and not being locked into a prepayment penalty, that is a huge bonus. It's probably worth some money you know, that has actual cash value to it. And AJ and I utilized HELOCs. AJ still has one. I sold off my last one from the property that I sold in Arizona, the first house that I bought. But having a HELOC like allowed us to buy those 14 homes with owner financing because we just maxed all of our HELOCs and were able to come up with that cash. And so Mm -hmm. honestly... You know, I think that that's a pretty awesome strategy to pay up. I mean, if you have a mortgage that's high interest right now, you know, above 6%, you might be better off paying that off and getting a HELOC. Yeah. Well, the HELOC will have to be in your primary residence because I don't know of any lenders right now that are Bank offering of the West. investment. Invest- Bank of the West does they, have, they, they have investment HELOCs. Mm-hmm. Thank God. I've been asking everybody that question. We're going to try to make the West fairly famous here soon on Bigger Pockets because we get that question once a week and people are struggling to get investor line of credit. It has to be free and clear first line. And it's, I think it's- Oh, so it has to be free and clear? Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. It's not a second. It's a first. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I think the question is generally in the context of a HELOC after that mortgage. Mm-hmm. And that used to not be a problem for people to get. And all of a sudden, poof, all gone. And nobody can seem to get those lines of credit anymore on their investment properties. And it's a major liquidity crunch for a lot of investors. But I will check out Bank of the West for the first position one, which is really interesting. I like that. Cool. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure talking with you. Like, you know, love your books, you know, love your work on the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. And obviously helping out bigger pockets and everything that they do. It's a great resource. We use it all the time and, you know, just want to say thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Guys, really appreciate you having me on. Thanks for the opportunity and look forward to keeping in touch. Please let me know when you're out here in Denver. Yeah. Guys, great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me on. It was really fun, Scott. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.